Let me pray really quick, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter 4. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing a, a people together under your word to worship you. God, would you be with us now for the next little bit as we look at your word? Would you help it shape us? Would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we come to your word that we would uh, see what you want us to see, that we would know what you want us to know, but that we'd be drawn into worship and love for you and love for each other? God, would you do this because of your glory? We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, uh, my name is Andrew. Uh, I serve here at the church as one of the pastors. And if you've got a Bible, will you go to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and this week, as you're flipping there, one of the things I've been thinking about is how every object of great value in our life will require some sort of maintenance to retain its value. Have you ever thought about this, that, that anything that you greatly value or anything that has great value in our world always requires certain things to do and certain things not to do, certain conduct and how we treat it in order for it to stay healthy or for it to be maintained. So let me give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, I bought my first like somewhat nice car, okay? So for the first like 10 years of my life, uh, I drove two really old Saturns. Uh, I don't know if anybody drive a Saturn around here. Okay, it doesn't surprise me that nobody did or that you wouldn't admit it if you did. Uh, but so my first car was this really tiny manual, like the color was like weird gold, brown kind of thing. And uh, the greatest benefit of the car is that literally you could hit it and the body was made in such a way that it could dent and it'll like pop back out. So it was great for a first time driver for all the little dings and stuff. And so uh, I bought this car and it was great for like five or six years. Got into college, I think it was my freshman or sophomore year and I'm driving down 67th Street in Exarbon, right by the dorms there at UNO. And literally as I'm driving on 67th Street, the thing just like shuts off. Like, I'm like on the road and it just dies. And so I kind of embarrassingly get it into a parking lot and I realized it was shot. And because that car worked out so well, I decided to get another Saturn. And so that one was another like 15 year old car. And I drove that for a few years and then that thing kind of broke down. So a couple years ago, I got my first like on a decent car. Now, before you think I'm like riding an escalator or something, it's like a five year old Nissan Altima. So, but for me, after driving these cars, this was like the first car that actually had value. You know, my other cars were worth like a couple hundred bucks, maybe. And this car actually had value. And so when I got the car, because I wanted to cherish this car, and because it actually had some value, it began to shift a little bit how I treated it. Right? So I got the car and I thought, okay, I'm going to be rotating the tires. I'm going to actually like learn some stuff about cars. I'm going to change the oil like every 1,000 miles to keep this thing in good condition. Because if there's certain things you do for cars that help maintain the value and keep it running well, and there's certain things that you don't do in order for it not to break down because anything of great value always has certain maintenance to retain the value. My wife and I got a house this last year and one of the things we did last year in order to kind of keep it healthy was to try and prevent water damage. We cleaned out the gutters and we worked the grades away from the foundation and, and to try and make sure that we could kind of keep it in good condition. We took care of the lawn. We made little improvements in the house because anytime something has great value, we always need to have certain conduct, certain things we do to maintain it. Now we're doing these things because whatever we value greatly 
it matters how we conduct ourselves with it. It matters how we take care of those things. Every object of great value must be maintained. This is true of your car, your house, your marriage. Anything of value is going to take certain conduct. Now, for the last four months as a church, if you're new, you're walking into a series in Ephesians that we've been studying for about four months, and we are now at the halfway point. We're kind of shifting into the second half of the book, and if you've been here over the last few months, if you've taken away nothing else from Ephesians 1 through 3, my hope is that you have at least learned this. God loves his church. Like, God loves His church. What we've seen is that He has chosen His church. He has saved us. Jesus has died for us. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. He has broken down walls of hostility for us. He uh, has exalted us, and He's going to exalt us one day. He, we are His prized possession, like His trophies that He's showing off to the world, to the angels and the rulers above. God has great value for His church, for us. If your trust is in Jesus and you're a part of the church, God loves and values you. So here's the reality. Everything of great value has to be maintained. There has to be certain ways in which we keep that thing we value healthy. And this is no different for God and his church. If God values his church so much, then it should be no surprise to us that he actually cares about the rest of the story, that he cares about how we live our lives, that he cares about the structures that we have in our church, that he cares about how we live day by day. I think sometimes we can get into the mindset that God really only cares about you getting your soul into heaven. Like once you just kind of pray a prayer and you accept Jesus, then that's all God cares about. And that's simply not true. And what we're going to see in the rest of Ephesians is Paul saying, hey, because God values the church so much, here's how God wants it to be run. Here's how our lives and our conduct is going to look. This is how a healthy church is going to live. And God cares deeply because he greatly values the church. And so in Ephesians 4, we begin the kind of turning point where we now begin to look at how does the church function? How do we live as a church? And so we're going to look at the first six verses. So if you've got it open, we're going to be in Ephesians 4. We're going to look at the first six verses, and we're just going to see three things I'm going to walk us through. We're going to see uh, our walk, our unity, and our motivation. Our walk, our unity, and our motivation. So first, let's go Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and I want us to see where Paul talks about our walk. Look at just verse 1. This is Paul writing, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says he's urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Maybe you grew up in a home where where your parents at some point, uh, maybe you were disobedient or you did something and your parents said to you something like, hey, we don't act like that in our family. You know, we don't do that sort of thing. Essentially, they're saying there's certain conduct that is fitting for our family name and there's certain conduct that is outside of what is acceptable for our family. 
That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, church, if you are in the family of God, there is going to be a certain way of life that is acceptable for our family name. And there's going to be a certain way of life that is not acceptable for God's family. And the way Paul talks about this is he uses this word, walk. He said that he's urging us to walk in a specific way. And you're going to see that if you keep coming, you're going to see that over and over and over again in these chapters. Paul's going to continually use this word, walk. And when he does, what he means is uh, this is our lifestyle. This is how we live. He's saying, I urge you to conduct yourself in a manner worthy. Think about it like this. Um, There are some people, maybe some of you in here, maybe you've been told this before, uh, who have a particular uh, kind of walk. Like literally as you walk, you have a kind of a unique kind of walk or strut or the way you walk is just kind of noticeable. Uh, When I was in college and I was getting to know my wife, uh, she has a kind of a distinct walk that she will walk with. And now all of you will look at her. So, um, but she, I remember when I was starting to get to know her, she would walk very fast and she would walk like on her toes. So she would kind of bounce as she walks. Now, we were in college, and there would be times, I know, but there's like a big outdoor space between the dorms and all this stuff. And so I remember there would be times where I could be like blocks away, and I could see her. And before I could see her face or recognize her at all, I could literally see how she was walking and know, oh yeah, that's Bailey. Like I didn't need to actually see her face before I could see that, before I could hear her voice. Just by the way she was walking, it was so distinct that I could spot from a long ways away That's Bailey. And I think that's the idea that Paul is talking about here. He's saying that there should be such a way which Christians live, such a a lifestyle, that you should notice a distinction between you and the rest of the world. Like before anybody, before your coworkers were to hear you say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, there should be a walk, a lifestyle that if somebody saw you for a few days, there would be a distinction between you and somebody who doesn't know Jesus. That's what he's saying here. There is a lifestyle, a conduct that is fitting for the church. And, and this verse, Ephesians 4.1, this idea of walking differently, walking distinctly, I want you to kind of imagine that as like a a header over the rest of Ephesians, right? So so if you think about Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, now we can kind of picture Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 as how we go about doing that. The rest of the book is saying, hey, if you're a Christian, here is how we live, Now, one more thing before we move on to the next verse where we actually see his first idea of what he's calling us into. Um, I was thinking this week that I think many people struggle with Christianity because they do not get the order down correctly of what Paul's saying here. I want you to slowly read this one more time with me. He's saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So church, it's very important that we get this order right. He's saying our conduct and our behavior, the way we live our lives matters, and we need to live a life worthy of that which you have already been called into. So in other words, he's just saying Ephesians 1 through 3 comes first, and then chapters 4 through 6. 
Okay? He's saying, look, the good news is that God loves you. He made you alive. He showed you grace. He's united you with Christ. God saves sinners. That's what you've already been called into. And if that is true, then you walk in a certain way. So we can't mess this up because for many people, this is where we get off in our view of Christianity because sometimes we'll think, okay, what Ephesians might teach is if you walk in a certain way, then God will save you. Or if you walk in a certain way, if you just follow all these rules, then God doesn't need to save you. And both of those aren't true. God saves sinners. But on the other hand, Ephesians doesn't stop at chapter 3. So we can also err on the other side where we say, hey, God saved me, and he just doesn't really care about what I do. Like grace upon grace, I can live however I want, and we need to remember Ephesians 1 through 3 is true, and then Ephesians 4 through 6 comes to tell us how to live. Both sections are important, and both are important in the order they're given. Uh, think about it again like this. My, my wife and I, we had our first kid uh, a year or two ago, and uh, we, before we had him, we went to the hospital, because they make you do this like tour, and you got to do this little class thing, and they kind of teach you a couple things about being a parent, I guess. And so we're there, and uh, I remember somebody asked a question, which I was kind of thinking, so don't judge me on this, but somebody asked the question, hey, is it, is it possible like to hold or to like uh, have your child be too dependent on you early? Like are some kids more needy and dependent because you like hold them too much? Do they need like a little bit of uh, dependence on their own. And I remember the nurse very emphatically was saying, you cannot hold a baby too much. Like as a parent, it is extremely important that you hold your baby, that you kiss them, that you cuddle with them, that you hug them, that you snuggle with them. It is vital to your baby's health that you show them a ton of affection. Now, at that point, when that child begins to grow up and they feel loved, cared for, and protected, then as a parent, it is your job to raise them up in the behaviors to which they need to behave. And so you instruct them, and you guide them, and you correct them, and you discipline them. And when that child feels loved and cared for and protected by their parent, they may not always obey but they're going to see that obedience as more of a loving correction and maturity rather than if they don't feel loved and cared for and protected, it will begin to feel like just rules and a standard that they're going to have to live up to. We get this. Every child needs to know they're loved and cared for for them to mature in a healthy way. And Paul is saying, Ephesians 1 through 3 is the Father caring for you, is the Father saving you, is the Father showing how much he loves you. He provides for us. He's with us. And if we have such a good father, then it would only be right for him to begin to guide us into maturity and how we should live. And so I want you to think about it like this. I have another slide um, for how we see Ephesians. I think this is just helpful to kind of see this. Just think Ephesians 1 through 3 is our Christian convictions. This is what we believe that God has done for mankind. And now Ephesians 4 through 6 is simply going to be Christian conduct. This is how we're going to walk. This is how we live. If we have a God and a Father who loves us, then he is going to guide us into health because our belief shapes our behavior. So here's the one thing I want to ask you to do as we move on. Providence, I want you to commit today. If you say, hey, I, I am a believer in Jesus. I have trusted him. My soul is saved by grace alone through Jesus. 
then as we walk through these next verses and these next chapters over the next few months, could we as a church commit to walking in how God is guiding us? And I know that may seem like, well, yeah, of course we always do that. But I want us to think, when we talk on Sunday mornings and we study this text and we hear God saying something, would we actually commit to saying, hey, what God teaches me on Sunday, I'm actually going to live out this week? Like when God presses on something that isn't true of my life, I'm going to actually shift and change and walk according to the calling to which I've been called. Would we say in my job and in my family and in my city group and in my neighborhood, what God tells me to do, I'm going to do because I know I have a good father who's for my good. Can we do that? Can we commit as a church to saying, hey, we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we've been called? Okay, so that's our walk. Now, let's keep looking at the passage, and that's kind of the heading, and now he's going to get into the first thing that he's going to call us to. This is the first marker of the church. He's going to talk about our unity. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the first step in our walk as a church, and what many people have argued is the most important walk or part of our walk as a church, is to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You maybe say like this, to retain the value of the church, like we talked about before, we must maintain the unity of the church. Okay, for the church to be healthy and to grow in the way God calls us to grow, we must maintain the unity of the church. Now the phrasing here says the the unity of the Spirit. And what we've seen over the last few months is that uh, in Ephesians 2 specifically, God talks about how he unites the church together and this becomes the dwelling place of God. Like his Spirit dwells inside of us. And so this means that when there are divisions in the church, that means that the dwelling place of the Spirit then becomes Divided, And because the Spirit cannot be divided, then our divisions in the church don't make sense for us being the dwelling place of the Spirit. In order to maintain the unity of the Spirit, we need to maintain the unity of the church. Let me say this just fairly bluntly for us. If we are not walking in unity with other Christians, like if there's division in us, we are not walking in the gospel that we've been called to. Like, if there's division in us, there's sin in us. Like, it is, it is that clear that Paul says, and say, this is that important. If the gospel is true of us, then there cannot be division in us. This is of utmost importance for the church. I don't know if you guys follow the, the NFL at all, um, but this offseason, if you've been watching it all, there's been some, like, crazy trades happening. Two in particular, two of the best wide receivers in the NFL have gotten traded this offseason, Antonio Brown and Odell Beckham Jr. And if you followed it, you would know that they did not get traded because they weren't talented. I mean, they're literally the two, maybe the two best in the game. But they got traded because they were hurting the team unity and team chemistry. You know, it was perceived that they cared more about themselves, they cared more about their stats, they cared more about their image than maintaining unity amongst the team, and so their team traded maybe their best 
player. And any team knows this. You can have a ton of talent, and that's amazing. But if you hurt team unity, you literally will bring down the entire team. The best player on the team is not worth it if they cause divisions in the team. It's why amazing players get traded. Or just think about it. If Gabe uh, and the band were to come up, and you got five musicians up here, and the music starts, and all of a sudden you realize they're playing five different songs that they all just play really well, well, they'd be miserable. Like, you couldn't understand anything. That There would be no beauty in it because everyone's playing something different. Think about a symphony. We've got dozens of instruments. If they all start playing their own notes and their own melodies, it would be chaos and it would be miserable to listen to. Well, the church is no different. Providence, if we are a group of 250 people that just individually are doing our own things and don't care about the well-being of each other and the unity of the church... We're like these players that care more about ourselves and we're just bringing down the whole team. We're like musicians that say, this is my note to play and if nobody else wants to play it, that's fine. I'm going to play my note. Beauty does not come in solo individual acts. Beauty comes when people come together in unity and play the melody together. Each local church should be marked primarily by her unity. Now, if, you, if you're thinking about this and you think, okay, well, how do we achieve this? How do we actually have a church of 250 sinful people that is fully unified and no divisions? Well, I think in verse 2, he gives us a look into it. He says, we do this with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I want you to think for a second. Look at those four things. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. What's a, what's a common denominator between those four things? Well, what's something that kind of is similar about all four of those attributes? I think all of those things that bring unity in the church is when we count others more significant than ourselves. Right? That's a thread that runs through all four of those. When we care for them more than we care for us. I mean, just think about it. A church has no chance of being unified when her members are walking in pride. No chance. A church will not be unified when her members are harsh with one another. A church will not be unified when we are quick to anger and vengeance on our own behalf. And a church will not be unified when we don't love one another over the long haul, through the highs and the lows. To sum this up, I think Paul's saying, Church, in order to be unified, we have to be others-centered. Because if we're always thinking about our needs and our desires and our wants and our rights, there is no chance we will be unified as a church. All these other ways, these are ways of the world, these are ways of our flesh, to care more about ourselves, to care more about the things that we like, to care more about our own desires and our own roles to play, will never bring unity in the church. Now, if this all seems extremely difficult, uh, you're right, it is, which is why this sounds like maybe you've never seen it before. A big group of people actually walking in unity all the time. But Paul's going to go on to give us kind of the motivation, kind of the here's the fuel that you can have to actually make something like this happen. And he says this in the end of the text, in verses four through six, we're going to see kind of the, the motivation that gets us to the place where we can actually be unified as a church, and it's all the ones that we talked about. Look at four through six with me. 
He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why is unity in the church so important? Because our disunity is contrary to God and the gospel. Like it's as simple as that. When we are, uh, have divisions or when we are not unified, what we are saying is that our God is not unified. That the gospel doesn't truly unite. And those things, all unity is blasphemous. Our disunity is contrary to the God that we say we follow. Our disunity is contrary to the gospel that we say runs our lives. And Paul lays out seven things to prove his point. I just want to run through these very, very quickly to just show us, just to make this point that Paul's trying to say of why we need to be one. So look at these seven things. He says first that there is one body, that is the church. Now, every local church, every little local church is a a physical kind of manifestation or a representation of the universal church. Right, so we have one universal church, every Christian, all saints from all time is a part of the universal church, and every little local church is kind of a physical display of this kind of spiritual and cosmic church that we see at play. He says there's one body, and so every local church should resemble the oneness of the body of Christ. Christ doesn't have multiple bodies, he doesn't have different bodies for different cultures, he has one body. He says there's one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. And again, if he says the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, how can the Holy Spirit dwell in a divided church? If we have one spirit, that means that there must be one body for the spirit to dwell in. He says there's one hope. I think he's alluding to the gospel to which we've been called. This is the gospel, which is the salvation for all peoples. doesn't matter your background, your religion, your behaviors, or anything else of your past. It's the one hope, the one gospel that saves all, that saves sinners in the exact same way, no matter your age, job, performance, skin color, tongue, whatever, the gospel saves. This is our one hope. He goes on to say there's one Lord. This is referring to Jesus. He's saying, look, we have one king and Lord that leads us, and if we have one king going in one direction, how can we have Christians that are going in a thousand directions? We have one Lord who leads his church. He says there's one faith. The idea that all faiths are the same or that you can believe in all sorts of different things is not from God. There is not just this all different kinds of beliefs will get you up to God. There's one uniting faith. That means there's not a couple faiths that work. There's not a tri-faith. There's not a universal faith. There is one Faith, Paul says, and it's the faith in Jesus Christ alone. He said there's one baptism. This was the early church's sign of you becoming a Christian. It's the external sign of what's happened internally. There's one sign. There's one entry gate into the faith. And he says there's one God and Father of all. We looked at this a few weeks ago. There's one creator. There's one king on the throne. There's one father of the church. The church can't be divided because there's only one God who leads us all. And our disunity shows the world that we have a father who breeds disunity. 
And again, that's blasphemous. Our God is a God of unity. He's a God of oneness. Therefore, the church is a church that is one. We are bound together by one Trinitarian God. We have one gospel message, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, and one Father. Therefore, providence, we are one. We are to be united as a church. Now, if this is all true, if, if, if Jesus died on a cross to unite us together, if he rose again from the dead to bring the church in as one, and he's building a people from all sorts of people to become this one new humanity, this one new people, then Paul is now starting to say that people, there's a certain conduct that's going to be fitting for the family. And the first thing that he says is this family is going to be united. Providence Church, in order to walk and follow the Lord, in order to live in the gospel, we have to be united. There's no other option. Divisions show the world that our God is divided, and it's not true. Divisions show the gospel isn't powerful enough to reconcile. It's not true. So let me just exhort us here to to two kind of closing applications of how we may live in this moving forward. So throw up uh, verse 3 again. I want you to look at this. There's two things I think that are important for us moving forward that if we said earlier, hey, I want to commit to letting the Lord shape me. I'm going to walk in how he's calling us to. I think there's two practical things we can learn from this verse. The first one is that we are to maintain unity of the Spirit. It says eagerly. Like with, with an eager posture, we should maintain Unity. What's interesting is that, that, that word in the Greek, the original language, is actually very difficult to translate. It's a kind of a mix between being eager, uh, hasty, urgently, and it carries this connotation of there's a crisis that has to get fixed now. That's the connotation of this word, eagerly. Providence, this week, could we see disunity in the church as an urgent crisis that has to get fixed now? Would we be eager to say when there's disunity, we're going to fight for unity? Our division and disunity is against the glory of God, and it matters that we walk in unity. So here's what I'm going to ask you very practically. If you've already committed in this sermon, if I already got you to say, yep, I'm going to do this, would you eagerly today fight for unity? Which means if there's division in your heart, in your family, you fight uh, at your workplace with a friend, would you fight for unity eagerly? Would you see that as something that goes against the character of God and you have to fix now? And it might get all sorts of confrontational in our church. And that's going to be okay because we have to be a church that's fighting for unity. If there's division, would we eagerly fight for unity. And before you do that, remember verse 2, we fight for unity and we confront division not to prove somebody else is wrong and you were right or you were hurt. We do it for the sake of reconciliation and unity. So we approach our conflict and our confrontation with a posture of humility and gentleness, with a posture of love and with patience. Or in other words, we approach conflict other-centered wanting to fight for reconciliation more than just fighting out of vengeance. All right, so that's the first one. Would we actually do that this week? Would you confront anything where there is disunity? The second one I want to ask us to, moving forward as a church, uh, he says that we would eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. Second thing I want to ask our church to be marked by is that we would be peacemakers. That we would be marked by peace. Again, in Ephesians 2, we're already told that Christ came and he made peace amongst us. He preached peace. He broke down hostility. He broke down divisions. And he is the prince of peace who's bringing peace to his people. Therefore, if we're going to look like Christ as a church, we need to be peacemakers. And when we do this, we don't confront conflict and disunity and order again that the other person is wrong. We do it for the sake of peace. We do it for the sake of peace moving forward in our relationship and being reconciled. Now, here's a couple things uh, where I think that, just to make this really practical, where we might not be fighting for peace. Uh, We would not be peacemakers uh, if we're gossipers. So think about gossip. What you're doing as you gossip is you are now breeding division between you and the person you're hurt, but also now between you and the person you're gossiping to and that person and the person that hurt you. So now in you gossiping, you're breeding more and more division throughout the church. So being peacemakers mean that we wouldn't actually gossip any longer. Being peacemakers mean that we wouldn't have passive-aggressive comments. Because passive-aggressive comments brings strife, and it's built out of a place of vengeance and not desiring reconciliation. What that's doing is subtly getting at the problem while you're passive-aggressively trying to get people on your side or trying to get your hurt out to hurt other people. Being peacemakers means we wouldn't be passive-aggressive. Being peacemakers means that we would not leave the church or leave a relationship right when something bad happens. I think this is very countercultural for our time because what we have the tendency to do is when we feel hurt or when we feel like there's a problem, it's easy to just bounce. There's a hundred other good churches in the city, so I'm just going to go to one of them. And what we're doing is we're saying, my God is not a God of peace, and so when I have strife, I'm just going to run over here. And when I have strife there, I'm just going to run over here. Being peacemakers, bearing with one another in love, means that we're going to fight for reconciliation until we literally can't fight anymore. We're going to bear with one another over the long haul. Lastly, let me say this. Being a peacemaker means that you would pray first and maybe talk second. Being a peacemaker means that when there's division, I am going to pray to the God of peace first. Before I tell that person, before I tell the spouse, before I have the internal dialogue in my own head, I am going to immediately go to God in prayer. And if the Lord leads me, then I'm going to speak on it. Now, a lot of times you should, but here's the reality, and here's what I've seen in my own life. There are times when I pray about a situation where God seems to actually work in other people's lives before I ever have to say anything. So what if we were people that consistently prayed first and then talked maybe second? Just think about, think about if a whole church did this. Think about if 250 people lived this unified in a city. Think about the the marker that that would leave our city. I mean, it is literally unheard of, and this is the walk of the church. Christ can do it. His Spirit is in us. Therefore, we are unified. Let me pray. Father, God, we pray because you are the God and Father of all. We pray that you would bring unity amongst us. 
God, we pray that your spirit would help even now bring up where there might be division, bring up where there might be conflict. And God, I pray right now that people that feel that would, would just talk to you, would engage with you, Lord, over what you might be calling them to do. And I pray where you press on people that they need to have a conversation, that we would do that this week, that we would actively walk in obedience to say we are going to eagerly fight for peace and for unity in the church. God, I pray that as we grow in this, month after month, year after year, that we would be a light in the city of a people that are so unified. It is radically countercultural. Where we don't leave when somebody gets hurt. We don't uh, make passive aggressive comments. We don't gossip about one another. But we are fighting for the good of one another, for the unity of the church, and ultimately for the glory of you, God. Would you help us now? Uh, we're going to respond by taking communion. So I want to invite the communion servers up. And as you do this, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, he, uh, he writes about how we should come and take communion. And he says, that, uh, he says that one of the first problems he has in the church is that there's divisions in the church. And he said, this is not right for when we come and take communion, because when we come and take communion, we're saying that we are unified under the blood of Jesus. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. If there's anything that throughout the last few minutes that God has kind of stirred in your heart where you feel there is some sort of division or disunity in your life, uh, I want to ask you to do a couple things. Maybe if the person's in this room, as weird as it might be, uh, would you go up to them and actually have a conversation before you take communion? Uh, Paul urges us, hey, you need to actually reflect and come with a pure heart, a heart that says, I'm a sinner and I'm coming to be unified under the blood of Jesus. And so would you do that? If, if the person isn't in the room or, or you can't do that, here's what I want to at least ask you to do. If you have something on your mind, would you make a commitment before you come forward to take communion to just say, I am going to talk to this person today, this week. We're going to have this conversation and we're going to fight for peace. And I would just ask that you live up to that, that you would walk this week eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit. So maybe just take a minute before you come forward and just ask if the Lord has anything in your life and in your heart that you need to confess to Him or confess to one another. Uh, and then whenever you feel ready, I want to invite you to come forward. If, you've, if your trust is in Jesus, this meal is for you. If you're a part of the family of God, this meal is for us as one. And so we take it together as one. This is a family meal. And so whenever you feel ready, you can come forward. There's options up here. Otherwise, there's a gluten-free option in the back. Um, and I just pray that the Lord would stir anything and that you would live according to that this week.